Well, we are uh, we're here today to um, to hear the word, and we're going to do that in a few minutes. But normally on the, this Sunday, Communion Sunday, we take communion after the message. But today we're going to take it before the message. Normally it's an application of the message; it's a response to the sermon. But what we're doing today is we're going to use it to lay a baseline foundation for the sermon. Communion or the Lord's Supper as it's also called, is it's a time of proclaiming the gospel. It's a time of remembering the gospel. It's a time of participation in the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the foundational, baseline truth of the Bible. What the Bible is all about, what it's all moving toward. It is the basic truth of Christianity, without which you do not have Christianity. So here's the nutshell. We are created to give glory to God. That's why we were created. We do not give glory to God. We fail to give glory to God. We fall short of God's glory because of sin. We choose it. We do it. We like it. Jesus came to give perfect glory to God. He came in human flesh so that he can give the glory that we should have given, that we failed to give, and he did it perfectly. Then he died the death that we should have died because of the failures, because of the glory that we don't give him. He died that death. He took that punishment. And then he rose again, something that we could never do, so that he can introduce us to new life in relationship with God, so that now we can be brought back to a place where we can give God glory, where we can worship him instead of ourselves. If we respond to that truth and place our faith in Jesus Christ and go, you know what? can't do it. I can't give glory to God, but he did it for me. And if I cling to him, if I believe in him and attach myself to him, be identified in him, then I'm saved by God's amazing grace like we just sang about. And that's what communion is about. The broken bread is his broken body. The cup represents his spilled blood on our behalf because we couldn't do it. Now that's the gospel message. If you believe that this morning, then we invite you when the elements are being passed, please take a piece of bread, take a cup. If you don't believe it or you're not sure what you believe about it, just just let it pass. Okay, Just let the plate go. No one's going to call you out. We don't have spotlights and then sirens that go because someone let the plate pass. If you're a believer and God's been nudging you on something and you've been ignoring that and there's a wedge between you and God and you're not getting it right and you're just going to take it because you're kind of faking it, but you're not really right with the Lord, while the elements are being passed and the music is softly being played, that is the time to repent. That is the time to get square with God so that you can take it in a good context. We're in a message series through the book of Titus and you can go ahead and turn that there now. The book of Titus, a small little letter, small epistle we call it, um, toward the back of the New Testament, so toward the back of your Bible. Um, if you get to First and Second Timothy, it's right past, first, right there, right after Second Timothy. If you hit Philemon, Hebrews, James, you went too far. Let's slip your hand up if you don't have a Bible, we'll pass one to you. We want to make sure you're seeing what's there on the page. This, has, this is not about what I have to say. This is about what Scripture has to say. Amen? Okay. Now, the book of Titus, if, if there was a way to kind of encapsulate the theme, one way to do it would be to say, you are what you eat. 
And you know, that's a phrase that, you know, we've heard thrown around when we're taught as children to eat good food and and be careful with the junk food because if you eat junk, you're going to feel junky. You're going to maybe not be a junkie. You might be a snack food junkie. But if you want to perform well on the field, if you want to do good in sports, if you want to be a little more alert when you're sitting in the classroom, you want to have vitamins. You need nutrients, okay? You need to feed your body the things that are going to put your body in the best position to be healthy. It is the same thing spiritually. In fact, why did God even create us to be dependent on food? I have no idea why he would do that. But I think it's a perfect fitting analogy for our dependence on him. This is why we take bread. Jesus is bread. Jesus is the manna. I mean, you see it all over the Bible. And when we ingest things spiritually into our heart and into our minds, it affects how we live, how we think, what we do. Good doctrine in, godliness out. That is the message of Titus. But the reverse is also true. Bad teaching, false teaching, junk teaching in bad living, off living, ungodliness, lack of holiness. And what's really interesting about the passage we're going to look at this morning is that we think of godliness in a certain way and then we think of ungodliness in a certain way. And the the ungodliness is always murder, villages, you know, dictators, rape, you know, just really bad, obvious. Everybody would say those things are bad. The worst kind of people, they'll admit those things are bad. It's the things that on the outside look like they're holiness and it's really ungodliness that Paul wants to go after here. And it all starts with false teaching. It all starts with stuff that's coming out of a preacher's mouth or a teacher's mouth. The dude on the radio, the guy on TV, the church that you grew up in that taught you junk and at the time you didn't know it was junk, it messes up your life and at some point, at some time, you start reading scripture for yourself and you realize what happened. This is why Paul wanted to make sure that Titus put elders in the church. Elders don't lead the church by telling people what to do. Elders don't lead the church so that there's somebody to sit at the front When we're having meetings, somebody to go second that motion. That's not what elders are for. Elders are guardians of truth to protect the gospel truth in a church. So we're going to pick that up. We're still in chapter 1, Titus chapter 1. And if you drop your eyes down to verse 10, that's where we left off. He just finished explaining why he wants elders, why churches in this place called Crete needed elders. Here's what elders are supposed to look like. Here's what elders are supposed to do. They're supposed to teach doctrine, teach truth, and refute those who teach something contradictory to the truth. And he says in verse 10, he gives the reason why. Why is this so important? What is the big deal? Because, or for, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. 
Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing's pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Paul knew how to lay it down. Detestable, unfit for anything, good work. They're all defiled. Wow. Where does he get off drawing a line? Where does he get off telling teachers that they're false? Don't we live in a world where, hey, what's true for you is true for you. Leave me alone. I want to believe what I want to believe. But that's false. We don't do that with any other discipline. You don't tell your kids, hey, you know, for you, you know, for me, I grew up knowing two and two is four, but for you, two and two, make it be five. The world is your oyster. The world is yours. Do what you want. You know, in reality, there was a man named Martin Luther King, and he was assassinated, but for you, maybe your history, there was no Martin Luther King. Maybe all that's important is how that story inspires you, but it doesn't matter if it actually happened. We don't do it with science. We don't do it with history. We don't do it, no, but suddenly with theology, it's, you know, open the gates and believe whatever you want because we don't want to tell anybody they're wrong. Now listen, I've been in plenty of places where the teachers beat you up with Scripture, where the teachers are, I'll talk about all day all the people that are wrong and never talk about anything that's right, never commend anyone for doing anything good. All they do is talk about how people are doing bad things. All they're doing is rebuking people all the time. But listen, that's what's ironic. Those are the false teachers. Those are the people messing up the church. These are the people that Paul is going after. How do we know that? Well, look at how he describes them. He tells us what they're like in verse 11. These are the guys that are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers. These are the people that can never really settle into a church because a few weeks in, They're going to conflict with the pastor. They're going to conflict with the elders because they know what's right. And as soon as the elders say something different or the pastor says something different, they confront the pastor on it. The the pastor doesn't subordinate to them. Maybe they move on. These are the people that are empty talkers. So they talk, it's just that it's empty. They say a lot, there's just nothing in it. I see this all the time on TV. I see it all the time in churches. Oh, the, 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 every third word is, amen, hallelujah, can I get one? You know, and what is going on there? I'm not saying everybody that says, hallelujah, can I get an amen, is a false teacher. What I'm saying is, after you listen to a message and you ask yourself, what was the point? And you can't come up with it? Problem. The talk is empty. But bottom line, the third word he uses, they're insubordinate, they're empty talkers, they're deceivers. They're deceiving people. And they know it. They know they're wrong. But they deceive people. Well, how do they deceive people? He tells us that in verse 14. He tells us what they teach. He doesn't give us the specifics of what they teach. He gives us the generality so we can understand how many different forms this takes. In verse 14... He's giving the contrast. They, these people need to be rebuked. And why do they need to rebuke? Hopefully they become sound in the faith. Paul still has an idea that, hey, these people can still 
They can still be righted. You know, we're not just, get get out of here. We hate you. It's, dude, that's wrong. This is right. Why don't you come along with the truth? So, you know, that's his goal. But what are they teaching? Verse 14, they're devoting themselves to Jewish myths. This is the, the situation in Crete that Titus was having to deal with. And the commands of people who turn away from the truth. So now, some authors think that Paul is kind of switching his gears from the false teachers to the people that are being duped by the false teachers. Teachers, are, they know the truth, they're turning away from the truth. And then the people that they're leading are also in danger of turning away from the truth. And how are they turning them away from the truth? With myths and commands of people. Another way to put that is people commands. In other words, as opposed to commands from Scripture, they're commands from people. Well, where do you find that verse? Well, you know, you have to kind of piece it together. Hmm. How do you piece it together? Well, you know, you flip this verse and you've got to go back to that verse and the original Greek and the original Hebrew and, and you flip that Hebrew term and then do an acrostic and when you match it like this, well, then it means that. That sounds like a lot of empty talk. I, I don't know. They're commands of people. I mean, this was battle from the inception of the church. You remember when we went through the book of Matthew? J- Jesus constantly arguing with whom? Who's he constantly arguing with? Prostitutes? You should not be doing that. Stop it. Let's go to the next chapter, guys. We're going to do a new series. Now Jesus takes on, you know, cheaters. In the next chapter, he's going to destroy gamblers. No, it's the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers, the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers, his parables, his teachings, the Sermon on the Mount. He is constantly busting up the people that are supposed to know truth but deceive people. And how did the Pharisees deceive people? Hoisting a bunch of commands that they made up on the backs of the people. Yeah, the Bible says tithe this, but really you should tithe that. And let's actually define tithing in a new way and let's make it holier and you should wear this and not wear that. And you should look like that and not look like that. And the prayer should sound like this and not sound like that. Hoisting human commands on the backs of people to the point where people couldn't bear that weight any longer. And they didn't live up to it themselves. That's why they were hypocrites. So Paul sees the modern day Pharisee. The kind of Pharisees that are a new brand of Pharisees. The kind of Pharisees that are popping up in churches. How do we know they're popping up in churches? They're not coming up from outside. He's not talking about other religions. Because in verse 14 he says these are people that turn away from the truth. That means they had the truth and then they walked away from it. So they're inside the church. These are preachers. These aren't atheists. These are, these are seminary grads. These are guys that maybe they skipped seminary, you know, and they just, you know, felt a feeling and thought God was calling them, and they just, you know, let's go. And they just got up there, and they, they talk, and when they talk, people like to listen to what they have to say, and they're like, well, let's plant a church, and who knows how they started. Maybe they started out genuine, and along the way, they lost it. But they're turning people away from the truth with human commands, myths that are not scriptural. They're not scriptural. There's a parallel in 1 Timothy. When you read Titus, and if you just read First and Second Timothy, you go, boy, these sound really similar. Well, they are really similar. Titus is in Crete planting churches, putting elders in churches. Timothy is in Ephesus, taking care of a church there, making sure they're growing. 
Paul sends letters to both of them, and he's coaching them how to do it. Okay. Now, that doesn't mean that he didn't think Titus. He just copied and pasted, and I don't care what's going on with Titus. There's differences, but there's similarities. Now, when he's writing the letter to Timothy, he also talks about false teachers, but he gives concrete examples. We have a couple of them. One of the false teachings that was going around was a prohibition of marriage. You shouldn't get married. How does that happen? I don't know for sure how it happened back then, but we could use your imagination to figure out how it happens. Even Paul taught that marriage is an issue. Marriage can be a problem. I mean, God created marriage, but we're also fallen. And you got fallen female and a fallen male and put them together. you got a fallen household is what you got. And marriage distracts you from ministry. It distracts you from the call that God has given you to fulfill the Great Commission. Paul made that clear. That's scriptural truth. Marriage is a distraction. You can do less of that because you're married now. Marriage is difficult. Many, many marriages fail. I mean, if you were going to get in a car and somebody told you, this, this kind of car, statistically proven that this car, 50% of people die when they drive this car. Go ahead, go to Applebee's. Would you drive that car? Marriages, half of them fail. Okay? So now all of the problems that are surrounded around marriage, they're going to go, the conclusion, the logic is, stay away from marriage to be holier. Stay away from marriage to do more for God. Then the next step after that is, well, if to stay away from marriage is to do more for God, and to do more for God is to be holier, then to marry is to not do more for God, therefore to be less holy. Therefore, if you get married, you're less godly. In fact, if you marry, you're defiled. You see how they started with truth, and way over here they ended up with a prohibition that is not scriptural. Yeah, marriage is tough. Yeah, there's distractions, but there's a reason for marriage, and it is the primary analogy of the gospel in the bible you get to live that analogy when you're married it's a privilege it's difficult but it's an honor that's what they were doing prohibiting marriage here's another one they did they would limit foods you can't eat that why i'll sacrifice to an idol you're worshiping a false idol whoa what happened there okay dude's eating eating soup and the guy goes That soup reminds me of the soup that they used to serve in this false god temple. Oh, really? In fact, I bet you they took the leftovers because those false gods don't actually eat the food and they don't want to waste it. Who wants to waste all that food? They reheated it and served it in this kitchen and you're eating it. Therefore, you're eating food that was used in a worship service toward a false god. Therefore, you're worshiping a false god. Therefore, by eating that, you're ungodly, you're defiled. Started with truth. And way over here, ended up off the reservation. Right? How does that happen? Because they moved away from what Scripture clearly says and made up a human command. Paul, you know, (laughs) in more than one occasion is refuting that by saying, guys, everything God made, he made for us to enjoy it. It doesn't matter if some bozo along the way used it for some other thing. We bless the food, we say thanks, we make a prayer, it's holy because it's God's, he provided it for us. So he corrects that along the way. Now, scripture doesn't provide every correction for every situation, these are just examples. Examples of what? Examples of human commands that sound holy, sound really, ooh, that's next level, but they're not scriptural. Now, if you don't want to eat soup, that's fine. If you don't want to marry somebody, that's fine. 
But it's when you hoist that on other people and go, you shouldn't do that. You go to the movies? Do you know what kind of filth they play in those theaters? You're sitting in the same seat that two weeks ago they were playing a porn movie in there, and you're sitting in the same seat giving money to the same people that peddle that stuff. Therefore, you shouldn't go to a movie because it makes you ungodly. Therefore, movies are ungodly. And if you find out that someone's going to a movie, you should ban them from membership from the church. They're defiled. Why are you eating at that restaurant? You know, I googled the owner of that restaurant, and the owner of that restaurant is Muslim. The owner of that restaurant's an atheist. The owner of that restaurant supports this or that other thing. Therefore, when you eat at that restaurant and you pay that person and that, you know, you, you pay the, the bill and that bill goes into the register and it ends up going into that guy's bank account and you're supporting that guy's life and his life is an ungodly life. Therefore, you're ungodly. You should be banned from church. I mean, do we need to keep going? This is what they do. They make up human rules and it sounds holy because they start with a piece of truth And then they walk away from the truth and they lead people away from the truth into a bunch of rules that aren't true. What makes it easier for them to do that is when we're kind of unaware. The preacher starts with a funny joke. He's really engaging. He's a real charismatic guy. And we get pulled in. But listen to how he continues describing them. Verse 15 and 16. This one, I had to chew on this for a while because it's, it still looks a little bizarre at first, but listen to what he says about them. He says, To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. In other words, ironically, they keep trying to hoist things on people so you could do better works and in reality that work that they're doing of hoisting human commands on people by those works they're showing that they're unfit for any good work all they're doing is bad stuff they're defiled and when he says that their minds and their consciences are defiled what he's saying is this is an internal thing you know on the outside they're doing good things on the outside, externally, it looks like they're sacrificing themselves for the kingdom of God. I mean, what, a, what tremendous measures of sacrifice. Won't get married, won't eat food, won't go to those restaurants, doesn't watch movies, doesn't watch TV, doesn't listen to music. It's all the devil, sports, Super Bowl, blah, doesn't do anything. Just so holy. Just lives in a cave, handcrafted by God's fingernail, you know. He's always listening to whispers in the storm, and he, he gets carried to places on winds and chariots and stuff. Man, wow, such a holy person on the outside. But their minds and consciences are defiled. Inside, they know it's wrong, and they still lead people away from the truth. When he says that, to the pure, all things are pure, he does not mean that to the pure, everything's pure. Watch any movie you want, eat anything you want, marry anybody you want. Don't marry, marry multiple times, cheat on your wife. Doesn't matter, because to the pure, everything's pure. Of course that's not what he's saying. All you have to do is read Romans. Romans 6, if Romans is too big, just Romans 6. And you know that that's not what Paul is saying. There's no way that Paul would say that. But what is he saying? He's talking about the context in which these false teachers are constantly grabbing things that there's nothing wrong with it and making something wrong with it. You know, now everything is wrong. Certain colored chairs are wrong because it's, that's not a holy color. You don't read about that color in the Bible. That's a devil color. I just made that up right now. But, you know, it's, it's easy to be a false teacher, right? It's just easy. You know, why are you wearing plaid? plaid? The original Hebrew for plaid is devil. 
Okay? This is what they do. But what he, Paul is saying is to the pure, all things are pure. Maybe that soup was somewhere else, but right now I thanked it, it's from God, and I'm eating it. That doesn't mean go and sin. It just means the things that the Bible doesn't say, these are sin. This is wrong. It is wrong to have this heart. It is wrong to do something with this mind. In fact, I can, I can do something holy with the wrong heart, and it be sin. If I'm up here preaching trying to impress you, and all I care about is, oh, when I'm done, man, did, are they thinking Lucas is awesome? Maybe I need to do better next time. Then I'm wrong for that. Even though the act that I did is a scriptural act, we should be preaching. You can do that when you worship. You can do that anytime. Because it's a matter of the mind, the conscience, the heart. So Paul's saying, look, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled, everything is defiled. So even that the good things they do, it's messed up because they're not worshipers. How do we know they're not worshipers? In fact, he says they're unbelievers. He says, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. What do you mean unbelieving? They signed the member document. What do you mean unbelieving? They went to the Sunday school class. What do you mean? They went to Awana and they came up when we asked the kids, you know, give your life to the Lord or whatever. What do you mean unbelieving? Well, Paul knows they don't believe. The reason why Paul knows they don't believe is because they completely missed the gospel that we talked about a few minutes ago. What communion represents, they completely missed it. Because what this says is, you can't do good. You were created to do good, you were created to worship God, but you fell from that and you can't do it. And you don't want to do it. You think you want to, but you don't want to. What you really like, what you really want to cuddle and keep and stick in your pocket and pull out every once in a while and give it a little, is sin. What you really want to glorify is yourself. What you really want to follow are your own ambitions and desires. That is self-worship. That is not God-worship. Well, how do we get to the point where we can God-worship? By trusting the one who did it for us. Now, what are these guys, what's their message? Their message is do more. Stop doing that. Do more of that. Increase your holiness. Decrease the unholiness. Stop doing the ungodly things. Well, what are the ungodly things? I don't have the spirit inside of me letting me know what those things are. Well, let me give you a list. I'll provide it for you. Here's what's wrong. Here's what's good. Here's what's this. Here's what's bad. What about this concept? What about this movie? What if it's this movie, but in that theater? What if it's that theater in this movie, but it's by that director? What if it's by this movie in that theater, by that director, but the cinematographer was this guy? What if the cinematographer is saved, but the choreographer wasn't saved? And then the rules keep getting bigger. You have to add rules to the rules so that you can understand the rules. They're defiled. Because they're basing their system of salvation on works rather than on the work that's already been done in Christ. That's the gospel. That's why they miss it. And because they miss it, they don't believe Christ. They have not trusted their lives to Christ because if they entrusted their lives to Christ, they wouldn't be trying to generate a system of salvation or of holiness that's false. The other thing I want to point out is their motivation. Why would they do this? He tells us why. He tells us why in verse 11. Why they need to be silenced. Why do the elders need to step up, tell these people they're off, they're wrong, and no scripture enough to be able to point to them why they're wrong? Why do the elders need to do that? The elders need to do that because they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Why are they doing it? They're doing it for profit. They're doing it for money. 
They're doing it for fame. They're doing it to prop themselves up, to advance themselves. They're doing it to position themselves. They're gaining things in a shameful way. Now, what Paul, Paul is not saying that there should be no gain. Do I benefit from pastoring you guys? Yeah, there's a lot of benefits. You guys love on us well. But is the gain shameful? That's the change. Why is it shameful gain? It's shameful gain because they're peddling non-truth, abusing people, leading them into deceit so that they can gain money, so that they can gain prominence. How are they doing that? How do they get gain out of this? Well, they attract people. When people are attracted to stuff, they'll give toward it. Well, how do they attract people? They preach an attractive message. How on earth is that attractive? Rules. Human commandments. How is that attractive? I'll tell you how it's attractive. Want to know how it's attractive? It's attractive because the message is you can do it. Follow these rules. Do this and don't do that. And you can do it. You can do it. All you have to do is be as better you. All you have to do is pull yourself up out of the bootstraps and come out from that muck that the devil has you in. And you tell the devil where to go because you have the power. God gives you the power. God created you in his image. That means you are God-like. And you have authority to do whatever you want. You go out there and trample the demons and you tell your boss you want that promotion and you look at that car and say, that's my car. And you look at that house and go, I want two of those and you're going to get it in Jesus' name because you are the master of your destiny. That is attractive to a defiled mind that worships himself. It is not attractive to say, listen, Jesus loves you, God wants a relationship with you, but first base is you deserve to die. It's funny, when I watch TV and politicians and Oprah Winfrey and talk show hosts are all in arms and they're like, let's sing Amazing Grace, Amazing Grace. What about the line about being a wretch? Do they really believe that? Because that's the gospel. I'm a wretch. Grace means it's something I don't deserve. That's what makes it amazing. How much I don't deserve it. That is the gospel. Not an attractive message. Not an attractive message to people that want to worship themselves. But if the message is, you, all you have to do is be better. Be a better version of you. Live your best life now. Do more. Think harder. Use the power of your mind. The power of positive thinking. Grab it. Name it. Claim it. Have it. It's yours. Of course that's attractive. Because the only difference between that person and a motivational speaker is they throw Jesus in there a couple times. It's false teaching. The motivation is shameful gain. They use an attractive message and people are duped because they like a works-based system because a works-based system tells you you can do it, you're on top, you're in charge. The effect? Devastating. When churches leave these guys unchecked, what happens? He says they're upsetting whole families. Verse 11, they need to be silenced because they're upsetting whole families. Now listen, when he says upsetting whole families, he doesn't mean like he's kind of frustrating them. You know, like when you feel like, oh, I'm kind of upset today. What upset you? I don't know. Traffic was really a pain in the neck. Not that kind of upset. He means the literal upset, like to upset something, to overthrow something, to destroy something. You upset a, a village with bombs. That's what he means. It's destroying whole families. Now, how does this happen? 
Because this is, how, this is how it started. It doesn't really matter what the teaching is. I just want the worship to be really good. So this bad teaching sneaks through the back door. How does it corrupt families? I'll throw a couple examples out there. I see this one all the time. Someone experiences a loss. Maybe they lost a job. Maybe they lost a spouse. Maybe they lost a loved one. And they're sitting there grieving and they're going, how can God do this to me? I deserve this and God gives me this. I should be empowered and God is depowering me. I started going to church and giving money and tithing and going to Sunday school and attending faithfully. I'm supposed to have this because this is what I earn. And instead of earning this, God is giving me this. God is unfair. I don't like God anymore. They don't have a theological grid to sift suffering and it derails them. That'll destroy a family. How about a marriage that is based on a Christian version of seven steps to a happy marriage? How about a marriage that isn't based on what Scripture says marriage is based on, but a marriage that's based on a mutuality? Marriage is based on, hey, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. Well, why did you leave that person? They stopped scratching my back, and you know what? After a few years, I couldn't take it anymore. Hmm. False foundation for marriage, crumbled marriage. What is marriage based on? Is it based on romance? Is it based on looks? Is it based on chemistry? Marriage is a picture of the gospel. This is Ephesians. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. The husband represents Christ. The wife represents the church. And the way that Christ and the church interact, that's the way that the husband and the wife are supposed to interact. But now we have husbands that refuse to leave, lead, husbands that refuse to study Scripture. They don't know how to live like Christ. They don't know what Christ says. And we have moms dragging the kids to church by themselves, and church is 80% women and children because the guys stay at home. Crumbling marriage, false teaching. I see whole families get destroyed because of false teaching. It always starts with false teaching. Always. So when you look at the devastating effect of it, you're forced to take it seriously. Wow, something needs to be done about the empty talkers and deceivers because if something's not done about them, whole families are destroyed. And if whole families are destroyed, you can't keep a church or get a church healthy. And that's the goal of this letter, is for Titus to help get the church to the place where it needs to get. Put elders in place. Why? So we have a piece of paper that says we have elders? No, so that there's protectors of truth. All right, what does this look like? We're going to wrap this up with a few basic principles to pick up on false teaching. All right, I'm not always going to be around. Plus, I don't want your detection meter to be based on me. I don't, I don't want to be your personal app. What does Lucas say? Oh, false teaching. Oh, my, no, I can't listen to you. I want you to have your own meter. Okay? I want you to be able to discern these things yourself by maturing and growing in your understanding of the faith. So here's a few principles that are going to help you be able to detect when someone's feeding you junk versus when someone's feeding you the good stuff. Okay? Principle number one, or first question that you can ask yourself when someone's teaching a lesson or preaching a sermon, does what he say, is what he's saying, does it match the passage he's in? 
Does it match the passage that he's in? I dare you to turn on the TV and watch the TV preacher and pull out a Bible and ask yourself, how many times does he go, look at that verse? Look at the next verse. It says what I'm saying right there. Turn to the next verse. Here's the context. Here's why that book is written. No, all they're going to do, they're going to make you hold your Bible up. Does everyone hold your Bible? Good. We want the Bible because we blah, 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 you know, some kind of speech about the Bible. Then they toss it to the side, and the whole rest of the sermon is how God wants to empower you. Jesus says this. The Bible says somewhere that. No references. Don't bother looking it up. I said it with a smile, so therefore you believe it. Does the sermon match the passage? Look at it. This is why we have people going up and down the aisles every church service. And we're asking you to turn to the Bible. Here's where it is. It's in the New Testament. I can't give you a page number because I'm not in the same copy as yours. But I want you to turn there so that when I'm saying it, you can go, oh, defilers. Oh, yeah, they're defilers. Oh. They do it for money. What are you talking about? Oh, shameful. Oh, shameful game. See, I want you to see that it's there. Because I don't want you to leave here remembering Lucas's sermon. I want you to leave here remembering Titus 1, 10 through 16. That's what I want you to remember. If you forgot my sermon, what I said, how I said it, my intro, fine. Do you remember Titus 1? That's what you need to know. You might even ask yourself, does he even have a passage? I've heard sermons where the guy's just going on and talking about Jesus and talking about this, talking about church, and we're 20 minutes in, and I'm like, why did I bring this? That's a big red flag. That is a big red flag. What else? Well, it needs to match the passage. By the way, if you look at Titus 1, verse 3, he talks about the word of God that's given through preaching. That's what preaching is, a delivery of the word of God, not a delivery of the guy's blog or the guy's thoughts. That's in chapter 1, verse 3. But does it match the gospel? We talked about this a little bit, but that, that gospel that I laid out for you, uh, if you're confused on any piece of that, or you're thinking, does the Bible really say I'm a wretch? Does the Bible really say I'm created to worship him, but I can't do it? Please ask one of us. There's so many verses we can turn you to. Simple, clear to look at. You can start in Romans 3 and Romans 6. But are they peddling effort, or are they peddling grace? Are they saying, you do it, you do it, you can go home and do this, you can do it. Or is there a point in the message where they're going, guys, we can't do this, but we have a Savior that can lead us into that. We can't do this on our own, but we can depend on God to change us and make us into the people that we need to be so that we can do that. See, that's a big difference. And it's one that maybe a newcomer might miss, but someone who's been in the faith for a while, you need to know the difference between a sermon that's pushing works versus a sermon that's pointing us to Jesus so that he can get us to work. That's not the same thing. It is a huge world of difference. So does his sermon match the passage that he's in? Is he even in a passage? Does his message match the gospel? Those four pieces that we talked about? Or does he skip some of those? Can I bypass repentance in order to follow through on the message? In other words, if the, if the preacher is up there and he's telling you, this is what you need to do and this is what it's about and blah, 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 blah. And maybe the message feels real good, but you didn't need to change anything. You didn't need to repent. There was no sin factor. Our 2 Timothy 3, uh, 16 and 17 tells us that God breathed out Scripture. And it's profitable. Scripture is profitable. For what? For money? Scripture is profitable to make a change in you. It's going to teach you, correct you, rebuke you, train you. 
so that you can be equipped for every good work. In other words, every time you encounter a passage of Scripture, there's something that it's trying to correct in you, train in you. There's something you didn't know that you need to know now so that you can do the good work that God is calling you to do. So every time we come to Scripture, it's chipping away something that shouldn't be there. It's pushing us in a direction that we're not currently going or continue to give us strength to do something that we need strength to do. It's a correction. It's a fixing. Sometimes it's a harsh rebuke. Sometimes it's an encouragement or a training. But in order to do that, I need to go, wow, that is not me, and I need to be more of that. God, help me with that. But not a message of empowerment, like, oh, yeah, yeah, I got this. There's a difference. There should be an element of repentance. This is what Jesus preached all day long. Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus started preaching. What did he preach? Repent and believe. That's the message of Christianity. Last one. When you ask the teacher to explain Can you explain that? Maybe after the service, you pull the preacher aside, or if it's a Sunday school, after everyone's, you know, taking their books or whatever, and you go up to the front and you're like, you you said this and you put this on the board, but can you give me scripture backup for that? Can you, is there a scripture that says that? Or can you explain the background? When you do that, does that ruffle their feathers? Kind of tick them off a little bit? Or does it excite them? There's a big difference there. When people ask me, can you explain? You know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking, here you go. Here you go. Here's someone that wants to investigate. Here's someone that wants to know the truth. Uh, They're hungry for it. Of course I'm going to serve it for them. But if I'm a false teacher and someone says, can you give a backup for that? What, you don't trust me? Listen, I went to this school, that school. Listen, I've been teaching for a long time. This is what it says. That's a red flag. And I've seen that. That's a red flag. We're going to, uh, actually we have posted something on the internet I'd like to point you guys to, okay? Um, It would be easy for me up here to just name a bunch of names. Here's a bunch of people that you don't want to watch and you don't want to read. But that's cheap. Because tomorrow there'll be a whole new wave. I'd rather you learn truth so that no matter who pops up, you can detect it. One way to help you do that, nothing can replace reading Scripture. You need to read it. Get a translation that's readable for you. Read it. Get the audio version on DVD with actors reading. I don't care. Read it. Listen to it. Ingest it. Okay? Nothing can replace that. But supplemental to that are other people that have spent time dwelling in it, meditating on it, praying over it, investigating it, and then they write books to help us with that, help us put this together. And so on our website, if you go to our front page and you go on the left side, the little bar there, there's a, one, uh, uh, a menu bar that says resources. That's where you access sermons and things like that. Click resources, and under that now, there's also recommended reading, and I put a list of maybe a dozen books on there. It's going to keep growing. I'll add to it, and I put a little description of what the book is about, how it's going to help you, why I think it's a good book. Okay? Um, it's just a starting point. So I'm not saying these are the only books you can read. I'm not saying read these books and you're suddenly the next Billy Graham. I'm just saying these are voices that are going to help you access this to ingest this. So I recommend you do that. And guys, this is something that is not just for elders. This is something that is for every single one of us so that when the false teaching pops up, we have a grid. We have some way to sift it. It's the truth of God's word. I want to invite the worship team to come up. And as we close in worship, 
my hope, my desire is that each of us become a little bit more like the Berean Jews in Acts 17. When Paul and Silas preached to them, they were very unlike the Jews that were in Thessalonica. The Jews in Thessalonica, they hated the message. They did everything they could to stop the message, but they came to Berea. And the Jews there go, man, that is really interesting. And they grabbed Scripture eagerly and searched it for themselves to see if what Paul and Silas were saying was true. That's how we need to be. We need to be Acts 17 Berean believers that investigate it eagerly for ourselves and don't just ride the coattails of a preacher. Let's stand and worship the Lord together.